I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and this is where I share my stories. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time it's the now annual Christmas episode, which is always made up of several bits of microfiction, and then anchored by a story set during the season. Before that, though, a couple things. First, the usual content advisory. The stories from this episode deal with a variety of topics, including the loss of a parent, alcohol consumption, vandalism, divorce, and minor gore. But hey, it's nothing like a couple Christmases ago when the main story featured child torture, so that's an improvement, right? We all felt almost guilty laughing at that one, if you remember. Almost. I mean, that kid was pretty shitty. Oh yeah, also, as always, there's a bit of swearing. The second thing before we get to the episode is I'd like to tell you about a book series by my friend Jennifer Moss. If you're looking for a fun and exciting binge, this is it. A series of mysteries with a metaphysical twist. The first is Town Red, in which Detective Ryan Doherty has to save his career by solving a double homicide of husband and wife entrepreneurs. During the investigation, he meets the mysterious Catherine Lowling, a psychic empath who knows just a little too much about the murders. As Ryan is drawn into Catherine's unconventional world, he has to figure out if she's for real or the real killer. Check out Town Red by Jennifer Moss, rated five stars on Amazon.com. I'll also be sure to include a link in the show notes. All right, let's get to work. Tracks. Two girls walk balanced on the rails of the tracks leading into town, holding hands in the middle for balance. Afternoon clouds pile up where land meets sky, things so thick and puffy, the two friends would not be surprised to see them leave behind mountains as they float by. In town, there is an ice cream shop and a library, a hobby store where an even more ideal hometown made of plaster and paint snakes around the shop in H.O. scale. The tavern across the street from the lumber yard would look more at home in the English countryside than tucked away on the prairie. On a corner in what used to be a bank is an actual haberdashery that makes most of its money selling scouting uniforms. In the community park, there are boys. The days of playing tag, climbing up slides the wrong way, and spinning on merry-go-rounds are behind them. They have reached an age where glances in the hallway become talking in the grass after school or wandering off to the creek cutting through town, not to look for frogs or crawdads like when they were younger, but to have a moment alone to navigate the labyrinth of young love. A first kiss is had, 
and a heart is broken. Two girls walk balanced on the rails of the tracks leading out of town, holding hands in the middle for balance. One girl talks in circles about the kiss by the creek. The other squeezes her best friend's hand a bit tighter, knowing the long life she imagined together is over before ever beginning. Homecoming Callan pours a splash of Laphroaig scotch into an almost clean glass. Want some, he says to his father, Sean? Nah, the scent is plenty. Your mother hated it, said it smelled like iodine and asphalt. She wasn't entirely wrong. Callan raises the glass to his lips and takes a whiff. Happy birthday, Dad. Cheers, son. For a moment, the only sound in Callan's childhood home is the sound of scotch sliding down his throat. So what have you been up to? Callan rocks the glass of Laphroaig on the dusty tabletop and says, Just working. Pays for this. Good point. Also saving up for an RV like you suggested during our last visit. See if I can make it on my own next year, traveling around and writing. Worst case, I park it here for free while trying to figure things out. That's great! I'm happy for you, Cal. Mom wouldn't have been too thrilled about it. True, but then you never know. She just wanted you to be secure. You've always had a good head about things and plan better than any of us. Thanks. I wish she were here. I do too, but some people settle after the end. I'm glad they let me come back once a year. Sean laughs and adds, I'll never get over how it looked like you were about to shit yourself when you saw me the first year after I died. Callan smiles and polishes off the scotch in the glass. I thought someone slipped me something at the airport before I picked up the rental. He pours another dram and the two chat about the last year of Callan's life. Long into the night, Callan says, Well, it's getting close to midnight. I should get an Uber and get out of here. He looks at the almost finished bottle of scotch. I'm going to leave this here. Let some teenagers acquire a taste for the good stuff. The image of his father on the other side of the table shimmers as Callan's eyes fill with tears. You don't have to cry, son. We'll see each other again soon enough. I know, but I miss being able to pick up the phone and call. Or just surprise you taking a few days off of work and stopping by. Every year I worry it's the last year I'll see you. I'll always get to come back on my birthday. And the house isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It might keep sliding out of shape, but it's ours and going nowhere. You can still move in, fix it up, and make it yours. Maybe someday. Right now, though, just a lot of other plans. And this place is full of too many memories. Callan taps on his phone to request a ride. He stands up and looks at his father. I wish I could give you a hug. So do I, Sean says. But we're lucky to have this. Yeah, we are. Callan looks around the old dining room, thinking about all the dinners shared with his mother and father at the table. I think I know the answer, he says. But why'd you do it? I hurt, son. 
I'm sorry. I just didn't know how to be without her. That's what I figured. Just wanted to know for sure. He looks at his phone. 11.59. I'll see you next year, Dad. Right before fading away, Sean smiles and says, I'll be waiting. The Last Wish I wished for all the money in the world, and the genie granted it to me as promised. Then, when nobody in the world had money but me, and I went out to buy something, and people figured out what happened and came for me, I wish that things returned to the way they were before I had all the money in the world. I was determined to make the one wish I had left matter and stick. First, you're probably wondering about the genie. All I'll say is it's amazing the things one can find in out-of-the-way antique shops. I'm cleaning up an old lamp I bought and whoosh! There's a friggin' genie in my living room. Of course, it offered me the standard three wishes, and I went with one of the most common choices. I'd always heard genies take wishes literally and do all they can to mess with the people they're in service to, but I was given exactly what I asked for. So a word of advice? If you ever end up in my situation, just ask for a specific amount of money, not all of it. Still, the more I thought about it, the more I wondered if all those stories about genies screwing people over were true. With no way to undo what would be done with my third wish, I went to the genie and said, You know what? I feel like no matter what I do, it's going to end up a double-edged sword. So I wish you'd just do whatever the hell you want. It was a bold move on my part. For all I knew, the genie would become all-powerful and enslave us all. So I was pleasantly surprised when he fixed everything wrong in the world and asked if he could crash on my couch while figuring out what to do with his new life. Monkey Wrenching Suburbia The day Jude finished reading The Monkey Wrench Gang, he attacked a caterpillar motor grater in the woods behind our houses. Our bellies were full of stolen wine when, back in the day, Our little town saw its first pangs of growth and affluence seeped in at the sides. There were always open garages and refrigerators full of beer, white wine, and champagne waiting to be consumed by teenagers daring enough to take the risk. We walked along the makeshift dirt road cutting through the small forest we claimed as our own, a scar of construction carrying with it the promise of new homes and more garages. When we reached the machines, Jude pulled out a rolled-up towel from a small backpack he carried everywhere. Inside the towel, two adjustable wrenches. I refused to take part because I knew progress would win in the end. So I drank wine and watched from a distance as Jude went to work. I watched hydraulic fluid arc in a perfect stream in the moonlight, like a sacrificed creature bleeding out. I watched the front tires fold over as the massive machine gave itself to the earth. I watched Jude dance around like a mad ape, all but beating his chest while smacking the ground with his wrench. When I told him we should go, he knocked out a side window, letting the glass rain down upon him like diamonds. 
We went back to his house and listened to Black Flag. It's funny how a handful of years as best friends with someone when you're young can create a bond of brotherhood lasting for life. When I found out Jude was dead, it hit me like we never parted ways. I still don't know if the overdose was accidental or deliberate, and I suppose it doesn't matter. Those times are gone, and so is he. Sometimes after visiting my mother on weekends, my wife and I drive through that old development that used to be our kingdom. And I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't live in that fucking neighborhood if I could afford it, claiming the house on the very spot where all of Jude's aggression was wasted. Christmas in Kansas My father thought the bridge over the Mississippi River between Illinois and Iowa was some kind of badlands where speed limits were null and void. I tried telling him our home state had jurisdiction over one half of the bridge and Iowa the other, but he claimed it was like international waters where laws didn't exist. Rather than explaining that one to him, I let him carry that fantasy in his heart. The speedometer on his boxy 64 Ford van went to 100, and Dad had it pegged. He said we were going faster than that, though. My father was a mechanic and claimed to have modified the van for better speed. I believed him because the engine beneath the cover between our seats growled. I waited for it to throw pistons that would bounce around the inside of the van, killing us both. Despite my fear, though, it was exhilarating. Watching the pavement racing below our view through a window so large, I imagined we were a 747 coming in for a landing. Dad took his hands off the steering wheel and closed his eyes. Sensing I was about to protest, he said, Just checking the alignment, bud. Before putting his hands back on the wheel, he took a long draw from the lucky strike in his right hand and picked up the beer resting between his legs and his left. He took a swig and put it back, not caring if the condensation on the can made it look like he pissed himself when we pulled over for gas or to use a rest stop. When I was five years old, my mother divorced my father. When I was eight, my dad moved to Kansas with my stepmom. Road trips from Illinois to Kansas became a summer thing each year after that. This particular trip was my first time going to the Sunflower State for Christmas. Normally, I didn't mind Kansas, but I wasn't sold on spending the holiday there. While I loved seeing my stepbrother, I was even less a fan of my stepmother than I was my stepfather, and Christmas meant my summertime friends there would be tied up with their families. Winter back home meant sledding, skating, and cross-country skiing. Kansas meant only the possibility of something icy falling from the sky, and nothing fun to do even if it actually happened. Driving across Iowa, my father and I settled into that part of the trip where silence covered us like the snow over the desolate fields outside the window. In the summer, tall rows of corn blocked views of the horizon, Now, though, I had unlimited views across what I deemed the most depressing place on Earth. I tried reading, 
even considered starting a conversation, but my dad was listening to his Skinner Date track, and Simple Man was about to move on to Freebird. I ended up breathing on my window and quickly drawing things before they disappeared. When I was done, I looked at my fingers. I don't have too many memories of my mother and father together, but the night I got the scar on my left index finger will be with me to the end. I had a splinter I couldn't remove, but I had them before and I knew they had a way of working themselves out. By morning, it would be ready to pull. If it hadn't forced itself free in the night, lost forever in my Yogi Bear or Snoopy sheets. But my father saw me squeezing my finger and asked what I was doing. I have a splinter, I said. Next thing I knew, I was with him at his workbench in the basement. To this day, roughly 45 years later, I still get creeped out by basements. Part of it goes back to my older sister convincing me that monsters lived in our sump pump, that a whole host of undead beasties were waiting to kill me in the boiler room, from behind the furnace, or crawling out of the crawl space above my father's workbench. But I think the first time I ever equated basements with terror was thanks to my dear old dad. My father fancied himself a surgeon of sorts. He was terrified of doctors, opting to treat himself for every ailment, and even family if it was a non-emergency. The bright light above the workbench was like being on stage illuminated by a spotlight. At least I couldn't see the rest of the basement in its glare, although hearing the creaking, hissing, and gurgling didn't calm me any. This is what I remember. I remember my father passing a needle through the flame of his Zippo lighter. I remember wincing and crying out as he dug for the splinter. When that didn't work, I remember him pulling out a pocket knife and passing the tip of its longest blade through the flame. I remember the pain, and I remember the blood. So much blood. Or at least that's how it seemed in the blaring white light from above. And I remember never, ever wanting to go into the basement again. How even if it meant dying, I'd hide every ailment from my father for the rest of my life. The Kansas visit that year wasn't as bad as I expected, but it still paled in comparison to Christmas back home. My father took a bit of time off work, which meant cold-weather fishing and visiting restaurants he liked during days we didn't venture out into nature. There was last-minute shopping, and for the first time in my life, putting up a fake Christmas tree. It was a foreign concept to me, putting faux branches that looked like they were made out of green toilet bowl scrubbers onto a pole. But when it was done, it wasn't as bad as I imagined. It was actually kind of cool. On Christmas Eve day, we went to visit my step-grandparents, where my stepbrother and my half-sister were given piles of gifts, while I got a toy Conoco fuel truck. My step-grandmother worked for Conoco, and the truck was a freebie. She was never very fond of me and my sister because we weren't blood-related in any way, 
And that Christmas was a reminder that I was not particularly welcomed into my stepmother's extended family for my simple crime of merely existing. That night, we got to open one small gift. My stepbrother and I opened identically shaped packages from his uncle who worked in Saudi Arabia. Swiss Army Knives. Not the one seeming as wide as a Kit Kat bar, but one still big enough that we had tweezers, a toothpick, scissors, a bottle opener, a magnifying glass, and even a corkscrew we'd never use. After that, we left out beer and pretzels for Santa Claus. My father said Santa liked that combination much better than milk and cookies. Then it was off to bed. I woke up a couple hours later when I heard something through the decorative air grate in the back room where I stayed when I visited. There were no air ducts attached to a few of the older air registers in the house. They were open to the basement, a leftover from days before central air, when boiler heat rose up from below the house to the first floor. I crouched down near the baseboard and listened. I heard faint music and I smelled smoke. The basement of my father's home in Kansas was not as terrifying as the one in the house where I was raised, but it was not without its horrors. Opening the creaking door was like cracking open an ancient crypt. It came not only with the smell of spiders, but also mummies, zombies, and anything else decaying and evil, at least in my imagination. My stepbrother once locked me in one of the side rooms in that basement for what seemed like hours, but was really only a handful of minutes. Aside from grabbing my big toe and rolling me around on the floor when watching TV, it was the only cruel thing he ever did to me. The underlying scent of mildew greeted me when I opened the door, but it mingled with the odor of lucky strikes, peppermint, in some strange smell I couldn't put my finger on. Dad, I said. Yeah, bud. Even though it was my father's voice, I still expected to see some hollow-eyed creature wrapped in bandages when I got to the bottom of the stairs and turned his way. The basement was darker than usual, with only a single light above his workbench illuminating things. I'd later find out that he felt the light was a bubble where he could focus, but as a kid, it seemed strange to be in such a creepy space at all, let alone without turning on every single light. My dad's shadow on the far wall looked like that of a hunchback warlock at a table in his study. It straightened up when I approached. As I walked toward the circle of light... I wondered why my dad was wearing cut-off shorts in winter. He quickly covered his leg with his hand. What you doing, I said. I'm kinda busy right now, bud. Doing what? Just please go back to bed. That's when I noticed the mason jar full of rubbing alcohol with something red in it. The mass was about the size of a large marble, and it wasn't all red. In fact, it was mostly white and yellow, like body fat. Fleshy protrusions sticking to the sides swayed back and forth in the liquid, like some kind of sea creature. I swore that whatever was in the jar even had a vein in it. 
I looked around the rest of his workbench. At the bottle of peppermint schnapps beside an empty half-pint of wild turkey. The tape player near his wall of tools softly played Harry Chapin's If My Mary Were Here. I knew that song meant he missed my mom. Until his final days, he never fully got over my mother going her own way when I was five. Are you okay, I said. He pulled his hand from his thigh. There was a three-inch gash that was partially stitched shut with dark, strong thread. That's when I noticed the X-Acto knife on the workbench with a darkened blade from being held in a flame before Dad went in. It's just a little cyst. Been driving me nuts for weeks. Merry Christmas to me, huh? He picked up the bottle of peppermint schnapps and, instead of taking a sip, handed it to me. Want some? I really didn't, but I took the bottle anyway. I felt the burn of the sip the entire time I watched my dad finish sewing his legs shut in the glare of the bright light above his workbench in another creepy basement. When he was finished, he took a sip of schnapps and turned off the tape player. Want to go upstairs and see what Santa Claus got you, bud? Of course I did. In the colorful glow of the Christmas tree lights, he pointed out all my gifts and told me what was inside each one. I was already a pro at acting surprised on Christmas mornings if I knew what something was because my sister had a knack for carefully unwrapping presents before the holiday and telling me what they were. You do know there's no such thing as Santa Claus, right? Of course, I said. I figured. It's just, with you not always around, I sometimes lose track of where you are in life. I knew any further discussion would result in him crying, so I got up, gave Dad a hug, and returned to bed. There's a place in Iowa where you can see forever, land so flat you can understand why some in that part of the country believe the earth isn't round. We raced back toward Chicago in Dad's souped-up van, the snow shooting at us like we were traveling through hyperspace. During the crescendo of Freebird, I pulled my new Swiss Army knife from my pocket. I opened the longest blade and sliced myself across the splinter scar on my left index finger, wondering what it took to cut into one's own leg to remove a growth. Before my dad could notice... I grabbed a handful of McDonald's napkins from the bag on the floor and held them as tightly as I could to stop the bleeding. Most people one day recognize just how flawed their parents are. How flawed we all are. I always had my suspicions where my father was concerned, but all his flaws became apparent that Christmas break. Still, in a strange way... Knowing how broken he was made even the tiniest gesture of love and understanding from him bigger than intended, and he was always a very caring person. I didn't let go of those napkins until we pulled into my driveway back home, where Dad squeezed me so hard in a hug that it felt like I would burst. He looked confused when I handed him the wad of bloody napkins, but he asked no questions. For that one-week Christmas break in Kansas, he was just happy to know where I was in my life, 
and the things said to each other in silence on that trip back home is a gift I carry with me to this day. Thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. Theme music, as always, is by Ergo Fizmiz. Story music this time is by Johannes Bornloff, licensed from Epidemic Sound. Sound effects are always made in-house or from freesound.org, although I tend to not do much in the way of effects with some Christmas episodes, so it's possible none were used this year. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and the music. In a couple weeks, we finally put this miserable year behind us. So what does the first Not About Lumberjacks story of 2021 hold? How's a story about death sound? I promise that it's mostly lighthearted. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp. So hey, you stayed till the end. For you, then, a holiday gift. Bloopers. I've received requests for outtakes, but I always figured they wouldn't be very interesting. But when I finally put this together, I laughed, and maybe you will too. It's pretty much everything encountered during a recording session, minus the farting. Not because I cut that out, I just didn't cut any this time. As always, thanks for listening. And blooper reel music is by The Fly Guy 5, a tune called After You, Sir. Enjoy. Two girls walk balanced... Ah, and there's the belch. Two girls walk balanced on the rails... Things so thick and puffy... Puppy. They're puppy clouds. Nope, not that one, the one before. Okay, let's try this again. There were always open garages and refrigerators... Jude was always daring. Eh, I'm going to leave that little tag off. When we reached the machines, Jude pulled out a rolled up paper towel... Paper towel, no. Jude pulled out a... Jude took... It's funny how a handful of years as best friends with someone when you're young can Okay, let's try this again. And I blah 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 used to be our kingdom. Alright, fa la 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 la. We're in the last story, the Christmas. Alright, here we go. I tried telling him our home state had Road trips from Illinois to Kansas became a summer thing each... Ah, so much mouth noise there. That was a good take. Yeah, there we go. See? You're not terrible. Oh, my name is Benny. Oh, damn it. <clears throat> what I deemed the most depressing place on Earth. So many mouth sounds... I remember him pulling out a pocket knife and passing the tip of its longest. Blah, blah, blah. 
talk like a fucking bird. With only a single light above his workbench illuminating things. Keep the mouth open because you're getting that mouth sound. That's a big smack. There was a three-inch gash that was partially stitched shut with dark, strong thread. Oh, why did I put so many fucking S's there? I felt the burn of the sip. Oh, speaking of sips. Oh, why did I write a line like this? This thing is fucked up. I felt the burn of the sip the entire time I watched my dad finish sewing his legs shut. God, why did I write this line? I felt the burn of the sip the entire time I watched my dad finish sewing his legs shut in the glare of the bright light above his workbench in another creepy basement. Boom, I fucking got it. I was already a pro at acting surprised on Christmas mornings if I knew what something was because my sister had a knack for carefully... Oh, I almost got it. Oh, why is this so hard? All right, we're getting there. He looked confused when I handed him the blob, the blob, the bloody blabkins. My father thought the bridge, uh, chair sounds, and now I'm belching, and I got adjust something. (laughs) Now I gotta get a sip of water again, because my voice has got a bubble. Fucking A, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Alright, so Christmas in Kansas is starting out well. <clears throat> Alright. One hour, 37 minutes, and 28 seconds. Woo!